Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. The crisp air, the rustling leaves, and the vibrant colors that are beginning to paint our surroundings signal the arrival of fall. And beyond its breathtaking beauty, the season reminds us of the ever-present cycle of change in life. Change in all its hues and variations is inevitable. But amidst this ebb and flow, there's an inherent beauty, a common thread that binds us all, and that is none of us can avoid change. This week, the stories on what she said echo this sentiment, emphasizing that while nothing remains constant, it's up to us to find the beauty in every transition. Here's what's coming up. Allison Sandmeyer Graves takes the lead today, diving into a topic that's been making waves in the sports world. The now infamous FIFA kiss has reignited discussions about safety, respect, and dignity in sports, especially for women and marginalized groups. As the CEO of Canadian Women in Sport, Allison has been at the forefront of these conversations. With her extensive background in advocating for gender equity in sports, she offers a unique perspective on how we can foster a more inclusive and safe environment for all athletes. Anne Brody returns with her expert takes from TIFF, from the hard-hitting boil alert that sheds light on the plight of Indigenous communities, to the mesmerizing world of El Conde, and the delightful twist in Love at First Sight, Anne's segment promises a cinematic feast. Rishma Govani joins us to explore the profound themes of love, loss, and hope in her children's book, The Stars That Shine for You. Through her poignant storytelling, Rishma navigates the deep waters of grief and the universal emotions that connect us all. In the realm of technology and education, Jennifer Flanagan stands tall as a champion for STEM education. With a focus on the role of AI in shaping our educational landscape, Jennifer's insights are bound to enlighten and inspire as we look towards a future filled with possibilities. Lastly, I'm honored to have Rowan Jeté Knox with us, sharing his deeply personal journey of self-discovery and love in his new book, One Sunny Afternoon. Rowan's story is a testament to the strength of the human spirit and the boundless love that defines us. So as the leaves turn and the world around us transforms, let's embrace the beauty of change together, right here at What She Said on 105.9 The Region. sports where competition and passion run high, there's an equally pressing need for equity, respect, and dignity. Today, we're privileged to have with us Alison Sandmeyer Graves, the CEO of Canadian Women and Sport. With an unwavering commitment to achieving gender equity through the transformative power of sport, Alison has been a beacon of change, challenging the status quo and advocating for a more inclusive Canadian sport landscape. Her belief that our greatest potential lies just outside our comfort zone resonates deeply, especially in the context of recent events that have once again highlighted the disparities women face in the world of sports. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome back to what she said, Alison. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Last time I had you here was 2020, so we've got some catching up to do. I'll say the whole world has changed <laughs> over that timeline. No, no kidding. So the, the recent 
incident at FIFA where a female player was kissed without her consent by her coach has sparked a lot of outrage and discussion. And in your opinion, why are such actions still prevalent in sports and how do they reflect the broader challenges women face in the in the in this arena? Oh my gosh, what an invitation to have a really, really good conversation. Uh, I want to just adjust one thing, uh, which was uh, the player, Jenny Hermoso, was kissed by the president of her federation. So this is like her boss's boss's boss, a very significant power imbalance, Um, though, frankly, if it was her coach, similarly, a really significant power imbalance. It has absolutely sparked a significant conversation around the world, and it's been thrilling to see how many people have stood up um, in support of Jenny. Um, And I think there's so many different angles you can take on this, but I might say that one of the most important, I believe, is to once again shine a spotlight on the conditions that women face in sport as women, simply because they are women, trying to exist within what is still a very patriarchal male-dominated space where uh, women have for many years in many different spaces been objectified and been subjected to sexual harassment, sexual assault, and other forms of maltreatment. This one being so visible has really sparked such significant outcry But I would say it's very fair to say, based on the research and based on other stories that we hear, that uh, this is a consistent experience for many people, uh, many women in particular across sport. So what systemic changes need to be implemented then within sports organizations globally and here to ensure that women are treated with the same respect and dignity as their male counterparts? Yes. Well, the good news is that there's so much that we can do. And um, I would say it's important also to see this in its context, too, which which points to the points to many of those many of those challenges, but also how the solutions are already all all connected. You know, this was uh, as we're talking about Spain, the Spanish national team, Uh, a year before the World Cup, 15 national team players refused to play for the team, refused to be called up because of the conditions that the coach was creating. So we've got the president of the federation. Now we've got the coach that we're talking about. Uh, So clearly there were things going on in that environment that were really not making women feel safe and supported. And now the top professional league in Spain, Liga F, uh, the players are on strike (laughs) for equity of pay and other conditions. Um, And Spain, frankly, isn't alone. I would say that as incredible as this Women's World Cup was in showcasing the masterful play of the players across so many countries, real like Cinderella stories, teams making it to the subsequent rounds that had never made it there. Uh, So much great content and excitement. Uh, It was certainly marked by Lots of teams in disputes with their federations, um, even as FIFA was increasing the pay, still far shy of what the men receive and so on. So there's this real 
like paradox, I would say, in women's sport where it's like, wow, there's so much to celebrate. There's so many great things going on. There is progress. There is change. The women are showing up and just delivering this incredible experience for the fans and the sponsors. Um, And yet, and yet there's still so much work to do. So where do we start? The good news is that there are a lot of different entry points, uh, which means that really anyone in the sports system has an ability to have a positive influence on the experiences and opportunities of girls and women. Um, We at Canadian Women and Sport really put the onus on the organizations themselves. They have been given the social license to lead, set policies, uh, and ultimately design and deliver the sport that people participate in. It is their responsibility to make sure that that is done in a way that is safe and welcoming and inclusive and equitable. And that really starts with the top. So how do we start to tackle this misogyny and inequity and other aspects? Uh, We need diverse leadership teams. We need women and not, not just white women, but women of every color, every background, you know, non-binary individuals, just very diverse leadership teams. Because with that, you get far less groupthink, less going along to get along, more willingness to challenge the status quo, to question, okay, I hear that we've always done things that way, but should we not be thinking about doing things differently? What about the perspective of this audience that we are trying to engage and serve or that we are serving and have a duty of care for? Um, they manage risk better <laughs> and they generate diverse teams, uh, boards and leadership teams produce better results. And so when you think about the role of the boards um, in setting policy, uh, which controls access and all other sorts of things within the sports, they control the senior hires, they control the strategy and where investment goes. It's so critical that we do have women at the table. Uh, So I think that that's a great place to start. Uh, I mean, that that really applies to just about everything. I mean, I'm listening to you thinking, yeah, that would just work pretty much anywhere, you know, in policing and any, you know, in the healthcare system, that that approach would work across the board. (laughs) It seems so simple. And yet we're still struggling for this. Absolutely. And it creates those checks and balances on behavior, right? We see less of the extremes, whether it's all women or all men, right? You see these extremes of behavior that show up. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about boards and leadership teams, but this, this is coaching teams. This is, this is grassroots, like wherever it shows up, this is a relevant and good practice. And I think can really set the stage then for other change to happen. Because as the policies then get revisited through the lens of gender equity and other forms of diversity, you know, then that sets the stage for the practice to change and so on and so forth. Um, And clearly, there is some need for that. We're seeing that in Canada uh, with the government mandating a new uh, governance code. I think, you know, there's a lot still to be known about that and to understand how that will impact the sports system. But we were very pleased to see gender balance being mandated on boards as part of that because we believe so strongly in the, the broad influence that that can have. And not to get too lost in the weeds, but there's a lot of that that came out uh, because of what happened with Hockey Canada 
last year, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Canada is not immune in this in this respect. We are absolutely in the midst of a significant reckoning when it comes to unsafe sport. Uh, we're and governance, I think, very um, strategically has been brought into that conversation because it has so much to do with it. Um, and gender equity is a thread that runs through all of these things, both as um, a lens that we need to put on the problems that we're experiencing, because women often experience them differently than men do or uniquely. Uh, but also gender equity can be part of the solution as well. And the bottom line is that sport is a it's a good that everyone in our society should enjoy. And the benefits of that are, I think, especially profound for people that have been excluded not only from sport, but from other aspects of our society. And ensuring that women and girls have access to sport as participants and leaders is vital to us breaking down barriers for women all across society. But also women are equally essential for sport. <laughs> And exactly. so, uh, as we like to say, it's not a woman problem, it's a sport problem. All right, we're going to take a, a quick break. We're going to continue this conversation after the commercial uh, with Allison Sandmeyer Graves from Women in Sport. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. We're back with Alison Sandmeyer Graves from Canadian Women and Sport, and we are discussing, uh, you know, the FIFA kiss, and of course everything that can, needs to happen to make women's sports safer. Um, Alison, how can male allies in sports play a pivotal role in creating a more respectful and inclusive environment for women? Oh, men are absolutely, absolutely essential to this process. They are critical partners. And I must say, uh, we are fortunate to have so many here in Canada who are really, have really paid attention and are really doing their most to support. And I would say, uh, absolutely, it starts with listening, it starts with hearing the women, listening to what they have to say and taking it seriously, believing them when they tell you about their experience and what it is that they need to to participate fully and freely and benefit fully as well. Uh, we are still very much in a world broadly and in a sports system where um, men, and I'm generalizing here, uh, hold a lot of power and a lot of privilege. And so I think one of the best things that men can do is to think about how they use that power and that privilege to create spaces for women, to create opportunities for women, to bring women into the conversation, to uh, ensure that they have a voice and they have a vote. And so that isn't always about giving up your power. It's not about becoming less powerful, but it's inviting other people in and understanding that that is actually going to make everything better, uh, not just better for women. And and how important is education and awareness in changing attitudes and behaviors? And 
and how early does that start? Oh, uh, so the short answer is that it's critical. You know, we're we're living in a world where we've all been conditioned to see the world in a certain way, and to and and it's natural that we hold our own experience closest, right? That's the that's the lens that forms our view, and so through education, uh, which can take many forms. I mean, it can take e-modules, reading books, listening to podcasts, um, but also talking to people and hearing about their experience um, and their ideas. Uh, it can give us other lenses to put on our thoughts, to put on our decisions, uh, and that can lead to different outcomes. How early does it start? As early as possible. And so one of the really cool things is that by having more women in those visible uh, accessible leadership roles like coaches for young boys, young girls, that shapes their view of women differently. And so there are opportunities to do that really like, okay, we're learning now, like we're going to have an intentional conversation. And then there are things that we can just put in front of the kids. And by just experiencing them, they will form their worldview differently than past generations have had the opportunity to. Okay, so let's just wrap this up with a pretty little bow for everybody. How can organizations, athletes, and fans collaborate more effectively to ensure that sports remain a safe and empowering space for everyone, irrespective of gender? Well, the simple answer is that everyone has a role to play. So everyone can feel empowered to to do something to make things better for themselves, those around them, future generations. Um, the longer answer, which I'll still try to keep short, is that um, there's so many different – I think it starts with looking at your sphere of influence, which could be I can impact one person positively or I can impact a team or I can mm -hmm. impact the sport for an entire country. Um, and really to look at who are the people that share this perspective with me uh, because it can be quite lonely at times to stand up for things and to push for things to be done differently than, um, than it's been done before. Uh, but there's no shortage of opportunities. And in fact, we love giving people things that they can do. And so if people come to our website at womenandsport.ca, you'll find lots of resources, lots of best practices, lots of ideas of things that you can do. Um, but a simple thing that people can do today is when they see something that they think is wrong, whether it's a comment to someone or an action that's been taken or a policy, to to speak up and to make their voice heard and to let people know that this isn't how we should be doing things anymore and we need to make a change. And that can spark a really great conversation. Um, easier done when you're doing it with others, but the courage to stand up, especially when you're seeing something being done to someone around you, is something that I think we can all practice more in our lives. Yeah, and it matters. And, you know, as we were speaking during the commercial break there, I was saying to you, it, it was breaking my heart to hear about these 15 girls who chose not to go on uh, and play soccer because they had to make a choice between pursuing their passion or keeping themselves safe. And that was just a terrible decision to have to be put into. So I thank you for joining me for, you know, sharing your thoughts on this, this subject. And of course, people can find out more at Canadian Women in Sport. Thanks so much, Candice. It's always great to uh, have a conversation with you. Waiting for a chance to set us free. Waiting for the day when you can be you and I can.
It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies, and TIFF continues. So, Anne, you've got more for us this week. What are we starting with? Well, as you know, Boiler Alert from Stevie Salas is an incredible documentary. Uh, my interview with Stevie is up on the site now, and it's uh, screening at TIFF today and tomorrow. So that's a good chance for people to see it. Now, Boil Alert is about the incredible dumping of toxic materials, dumping, spillage, whatever, toxic stuff from uranium mines, uh, coal mines, and in grassy narrows, as we all know about in Ontario. Uh, so it's all over North America. And so the communities have been living under boil alerts for up to 30 years, and no one's cleaned it up. Absolutely disgusting. Uh, so anyway, Stevie um, is an Apache Indian, and he uh, hooks up with Layla Stotts, um, and I believe she's Mohawk, I'm not sure. But um, they travel to these sites they see what's going on. They see the devastation that it's caused, including early death, rampant illness on these reservations, um, toxic water. Some communities have to have their water flown in in plastic bottles. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's just so sad and so unnecessary. Anyway, it is playing uh, September 15, 16 at TIFF. So good right. chance to catch it. Yeah, I, I highly recommend uh, people catch that one. It's important to know what's going on at these reservations. Yeah. And we just turn a blind eye time and time again. Um, all right, let's talk about El Condo. <laughs> that, it's an incredible film. Uh, it was at Venice and it got so much praise, but uh, it's not here at TIFF. I know that they lost a lot of, of high profile films at TIFF because of the sort of unknown situation with SAG and everything. But um, so this is a film from Pablo Lorraine, who did that incredible doc, uh, film with um, uh, Kristen Stewart as Diana Spencer and uh, the other one on, on Jackie uh, Kennedy. Anyway, so this is about Chilean dictator, butcher, Augusto Pinochet. It's black and white, and it's narrated by none other than Margaret Thatcher. Now, I guess it's AI, but apparently it's to draw attention to the fact that she was close friends with this uh, monster who, who is responsible for so many deaths in his country. So he's been gone a long while. But what we see in this film, it's a, it's a fantasy, um, is that he in fact, was a 250-year-old vampire. And we've reached him now in this black and white film out in the middle of the desert. He's beginning to feel his age. He wants to die, but he can't help himself. He just keeps, you know, sucking blood and doing all of that. And it's so funny and unusual. I, it's hard to describe. It, it has a dreamlike quality. There's a lot of flying in it. Um, and... It, it's it starts back in the French Revolution when his first iteration, uh, you know, was a murderous thug, um, and it carries through all his his various incarnations as uh, tyrannical uh, soldiers or military people or whatever, right up to modern day Chile. So uh, I don't know. It's not to everybody's taste, but I got such a charge out of it. It was tremendously entertaining. Now that starts 
on Netflix. It's there now. So be sure and catch it. All right. And um, Love at First Sight, that's also on Netflix, right? It is. Yes. And it's totally different. It's a very sweet rom-com with a bit of a twist. So it's a rom-com, but it's not saccharine. Uh, Haley Lou Richardson from The White Lotus and Ben Hardy um, uh, play a couple of kids and they're on a plane going to London. She for her father's second wedding. He for a family event that he doesn't really specify. So they they kind of fall in love and they say, well, this this is just like a rom-com, only not a cheesy one. So it's based on Jennifer Smith's uh, best-selling book. And the central idea of it is to statistically, what are the chances of love at first sight? Now, Ben's character is a nerd, a statistics nerd. And uh, so you see... And actually, I was talking to the, to the author, and she said she made up a lot of the facts, <laughs> a lot of the statistics. But you know, what are you going to do? Uh, it's it's quite sweet, and it's it's rather endearing. Um, so you know, she loses his phone number as soon as they get off the plane, and she spends the next while in London trying to be at her father's wedding, trying to find Oliver. So lots goes on, and I. I it, it's just very refreshing. It's a rom-com of a different stripe. Okay, we've got about 30 seconds left. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Danielle Luna? Yeah, now she was a huge supermodel in the 60s. A uh, very short period of time. She was uh, born in Detroit. Peggy Ann Danielle Aragonia Pujo Luna Freeman. <laughs> Into a very turbulent household. By 14, she was 6'2", and she got a modeling contract that same year. She was on all the covers of magazines, um, except for Vogue, because uh, Diana Vreeland said nobody wants to look at that, which was a very racist comment, because she she's biracial. So she had enough of the racism, moved to Europe, became the toast of Paris, the toast of London. She dated Klaus Kinski and Brian Jones, and... Um, just sprang on the world. She was she was the supermodel, one of the first ones actually, and uh, wound up living in rural Italy with her husband, at where she had a child, and just removing herself from that world. It took a lot out of her. Um, so it's a very interesting film about this creature that looks so unusual, so tall, so slim, so changeable you know she was like an actor actor model um so that's well worth seeing it's on crave tv now all right excellent okay uh, so you've got these and more obviously over at what she said talk.com and we'll see you next week we will thanks she when i was young i would look in the mirror didn't see it then, but now it couldn't be clearer. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. You took my hand, you showed me how you promised me you'd be around. Uh-huh. That's right. 
navigating the complexities of life, especially when it comes to explaining profound topics like love, loss, and hope to children, requires a special touch. Today, we're joined by Rishma Gavani, an author who has masterfully addressed these themes in her new children's book, The Stars That Shine for You. From celebrating the rich tapestry of global cuisine in sushi and samosas to traversing the deep waters of grief after the loss of her beloved husband, Ali, Rishma has emerged as a powerful voice advocating for grief literacy. As a mother, a wife, and a passionate storyteller, she's here to share insights from her book and the universal emotions that bind us all in times of sorrow and joy. Welcome back to What She Said, Rishma. Hi, thank you for having me today. So what inspired you to write The Stars That Shine for You? And how did you approach the delicate topic of death for such a young audience? The inspiration behind this book is my lovely late husband, Ali, who um, was handed a really a difficult set of cards, a deck of cards um, many years ago. He lived for six years with a terminal illness, a rare form of sarcoma, cancer. And um, we lived this life of uncertainty and we tried to live, you know, life to the fullest. And he just had this zest for life. And he constantly was trying and we lived each day like our last. It was exhausting, but exhilarating at the same time. Ali um, was called early to his calling from above. I, I always say he got his angel wings early. He always liked to be early, not even on time. He liked to like beat everyone and be on time and early. So he he got there almost three years ago. So he passed sadly in September 2020. It was devastating for me and our family and our friends, our community, obviously our children who are still processing as am I. And I had written a, a, a different children's book, which you mentioned in your intro called Sushi and Samosas. And one of the things I'm really passionate about as a side hustle is really championing uh, diversity in, in kids' literature and children's literature. And so, you know, the first book dealt with food around the world. And so through the last three years, I've really found my voice and become an advocate for grief and talking on different podcasts and interview opportunities. And I turned and married my my newfound role as a grief advocate, which I didn't ever, you know, think that I would be or imagined I would be, and married it with this idea of diversity in children's literature. And so the book is a very poetic approach. It's a very unconventional approach to introducing the concept of death and grief and loss and hope and love. And it looks at different cultures in each page. There's a different culture that's, um, or a different tradition, a different custom that's, you know, happening in the book. And it all kind of comes together in the end. And, And the concept being that while different faith practices, different cultures, different different ethnic groups may have different traditions or celebrations around death even, what could bind us together in the most even poetic way is something that I hope we can all agree on, and that is the stars, the stars above us. And we all have these beautiful, bright, shining stars above us looking out for us, and that's how it all came together. And that's what the the book represents and is about. 
It's beautiful imagery, the stars above us. I It makes me smile. I love that concept. So can you tell me um, about grief literacy for children and why you think this is so important? I think grief for both adults and children, all demographics, all backgrounds, all ages is really difficult. It's a difficult topic to navigate, to talk about as a society, as a culture, as, you know, as a world, we, we shove it to the side. We, we, it's an uncomfortable topic. We know it's going to happen. It's guaranteed. Famous quote, two things are guaranteed in life. It's taxes and death. And yet we don't talk about it and we don't talk about it easily. And so by finding all these other young widows and mothers who have experienced death, I've found language and resources and finding that even the word death, we're, 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 that was hard for me to say. My husband died. I would say my husband passed. My husband, you know, um, got his angel wings, all of that. Like we're just shy around that. And so I think there has to be a lot more um, education a lot more change in that area. I think generationally, there's also room for improvement. And that's why I think we need to start with the next generations to be able to make this a topic that is just like every other topic. And that is there are hard topics, and there are easier topics, and there's funny topics. And there's this is just another topic, a daily topic that happens. It happens to animals. It happens to, you know, celebrities. It happens all around us every day. And so that has really been my experience with grief advocacy is that we're all learning. No uh, journey is the same. It's not linear. It's a zigzag of emotions. It's a you know, just a soup of all these different things that come at different times and different emotions. But the starting point, I think, is just being able to introduce it and talk about it. And then eventually maybe talk about it with ease. Well, this book sounds like the perfect way to open up this conversation with kids, obviously, uh, whether it is something you're grappling with within your own family right now or something you anticipate maybe have coming down the road. Uh, so where can people find the book, Rishma, and how can they connect with you and follow along with what you're doing? The book is readily available online. Um, if you live in Canada, I always like to support the Chapters Indigo uh, brand. Uh, it's available on other online retailers like Amazon. Feel free to reach out directly. I'm easy to find. It's Rishma Govani on Instagram. The handle is the stars that shine for you. And I think, you know, initially I thought this is a book that's just a good resource because, you know, it's not it's not if, it's when the situation occurs and you want to introduce this as a topic for your children or in your classrooms as a resource, it's there. But I've shifted that to, you know what, just make this part of your rotation. Make this part of your reading rotation along with the squirrel, squirrel that climbs the tree and all these other topics. And so that when the time comes, the children have already been introduced to it and then can go to the book and remember it and maybe ask questions about it or think about it a little bit differently. All right. Excellent advice. All right, uh, Rishma, we're going to put that in the liner notes when this goes out on podcast. It'll also be on the website if people want to go check that out. We add it every week, uh, show notes. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me.
rapidly evolving landscape of technology, the intersection of artificial intelligence and education has become a focal point of discussion. Today, I'm thrilled to have Jennifer Flanagan with us, a beacon of youth engagement with over two decades of experience. As a staunch advocate for STEM education in Canada, especially for marginalized groups, Jennifer has been instrumental in equipping youth with the tools and knowledge they need for the future. Her insights have not only shaped the educational trajectories of many, but have also paved the way for a more inclusive and informed approach to STEM. Today, she's here to share her wisdom on the role of AI in education and how we can best prepare our youth for the challenges and opportunities it presents. Welcome to What She Said, Jennifer. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, AI sort of stormed onto the scene last year in December, I think, catching everybody off guard. Just what are your thoughts? How do you think we're prepared now entering back into school in September for, mm-hmm. for AI? Um, so you mean ChatGPT in December it was launched? Yes, uh, yes. Which is an AI platform. Right. Um, and, and so, yes, it caught, it caught everybody uh, by storm. I mean, it, it's got now in the first three months over 100 million users globally. And uh, I think, you know, from my perspective as someone that works in the space of, of youth in technology, uh, when things really picked up was when Snapchat introduced a chat GPT tool in its platform. So all of a sudden, overnight, literally millions and millions of people, many of them teens or young people, um, or whoever use Snapchat, were introduced to this artificial intelligence um, capacity. So that has uh, meant that teachers and parents are, you know, we're, we're all catching up. And, um, and certainly as we go back into the school year, it's, um, it's something that many people are, you know, either really embracing and using to, to their benefit. And we've heard lots of amazing stories of teachers doing that across the country. Um, and certainly we're, we're also hearing the, um, the more negative stories or the stories of concern, I will say, uh, among parents and among teachers about how to use this appropriately, because it is a new tool. It is, you know, we're hearing a lot of sort of doom and gloom stories about artificial intelligence, but I really, um, I really see it as a huge tool for learning, a massive opportunity to help teachers, which I think most people can get behind wanting to, to lessen the load on teachers um, and, and really just a tool overall. I mean, I'm, I'm using it um, most days, you know, many, many times a day, both at work, um, but also at home. I have two, two girls. I'm using it with them uh, to help with their, their homework. I used it for vacation planning. I, I'm like a, a, a super user, um, but it's mostly just to experiment to find out what the limitations are. And, and that's what we're encouraging, you know, parents and teachers to do as well. I'm with you. I, I'm using it almost daily now. And, you know, from the mo- the more mundane things, like I have, you know, chickpeas in the house, what can I make with that? Yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. you know, helping me with, with my workload. So, you know, there are a lot of great uses for it. But with the increasing integration of, of it into classrooms, how can mm-hmm. parents ensure that their kids remain safe online? Mm-hmm. So it's a really important timing to to have those conversations, you know, back to school. And we've been talking uh, a lot about that, the reminders of, you know, safety and security online. Um, so, you know, parents really, uh, it's about an ongoing conversation they have with their, their kids about what they're doing online and who they're interacting with, what kind of apps they're using, um, what expectations they have for their kids online, which I think a lot of parents um, really draw the distinction between the online world and the offline world. And whereas kids are just 
for them, it's, it's one world. It's all that they know. So having the conversation about, you know, what's happening online is really, really important with artificial intelligence in the classroom. This becomes a bigger conversation about, you know, which has to involve teachers, which is how, how can we use this as a tool, not to replace the, the academic learning, but to help, how can it help me, you know, personalize the learning? How can it help me, um, you know, sort of take things a step further. And I think that's where teachers are getting really creative with how they're using this in the classroom. What we're seeing um, overall, um, which we are super um, uh, excited about, is that teachers are actually embracing this um, quite quickly. So they're using it both to uh, do, for example, things like lesson plans, to come up with really creative new activities in the classroom, um, to help some of the learners that might approach things in, in different ways. So you can imagine, you know, to help me explain, uh, you know, photosynthesis to a learner who's mostly visual. Um, so lots of really creative creative uses and things that are saving teachers time. So uh, in that conversation is eventually we're going to get to some parameters around how to use these tools in ways that are appropriate and ways that aren't replacing the learning and replacing the work that needs to get done. So in your opinion, do you think we're keeping up with AI and fast enough or, you know, because it feels like, you know, you're talking about teachers applying this in the classroom, but what about overall board decisions, policy decisions from the top? Have any, have you heard of any uh, advancements or discussions there? Uh, certainly I've heard of discussions, uh, but no, there has uh, not to my knowledge and we're, pretty tapped in. Have I heard any policies per se? I think teachers have provided with, you know, students or classrooms with guidelines. I think this happened so quickly. And, um, you know, we really did not uh, anticipate, I think, uh, how how fast this would get into the hands of kids. Um, so if it's not in the classroom, it, it is certainly with them at home. And uh, I, I think it's going to be a bit of both. I think teachers in classrooms are going to come up with uh, guidelines of how this can be used. So use it to come up with an outline for an assignment, but you need to identify which sections, for example, you've used ChatGPT um, to help you with. And then I think that will that'll go up, and I think that'll dictate some of the policies that are happening board wide. But it's 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 way too late. You know, common question is will will it be banned in classrooms? I really don't think that that's even a a possibility anymore. It's too widespread. It's too accessible. Um, and the conversation then becomes, how do we teach kids how to appropriately use these as tools? Very similar to how calculators were introduced and the concerns that people had around calculators and cheating and loss of learning. Um, it's just a, a more advanced technology tool, certainly much more complex, but um, it will have the same kind of evolution where you know we'll, we'll figure out how to best use it in the classroom. From your perspective, what are sort of the biggest opportunities that AI is going to bring to mm -hmm. education then? really around personalized learning. So, you know, when a teacher is in a classroom with 25 or 30 students, it's very difficult for um, that teacher to to provide personalized learning tools and and to really understand where each student is and what they what they need at that moment. So, what something like a ChatGPT and other AI tools do is really allow the teacher to assess exactly where the student is struggling. Um, and that's through analytic tools that can be used, and then to develop materials that are best going to meet the needs of that student at that particular moment. And that 
it, you know, can happen in school, but it can also happen after hours when, you know, you don't have the benefit of having a teacher there to support you. So this is going to be about personalized, uh, personalized learning. And what about the pitfalls? What are the biggest pitfalls mm-hmm. in your mind that we may fall into with AI in when it comes to education and, you know, keeping kids away, obviously, from a lot of misinformation and disinformation that's out there? Mm-hmm. Well, it's exactly what you've you've just mentioned. It's uh, making sure that we are having those conversations to say you have to be very critically minded when you look at the information that's being generated by something like ChatGPT. Check your sources. Double check what's being said. Um, it's not a perfect you know provider, even though it's pulling from you know millions of data points. There are still going to be areas where there um, is just straight up wrong information that's provided. So that's going to be um, the biggest thing. But it, I, I look at it as an opportunity to to further develop critical skills. Uh, youth are being presented with all kinds of different media through technology, and they have to be able to to identify what's, what's the truth and what isn't, what needs further investigation. And what are you personally hoping to see uh, happen now with, with, with this advancement in AI? Well, what my, my biggest hope really is, is first for teachers, because I think that they have, you know, they do have such a heavy um, a lift coming out of the pandemic, especially with youth at all kinds of different uh, levels with, you know, increased mental health issues in the classroom. This does provide a tool that helps them with some of the things that take a long time, but that aren't the best uses of their time. So whether that's, you know, grading or, you know, providing uh, new lesson plans or coming up with tests, coming up with worksheets, things like that, that will free up their time for what they do best, which is providing that one-on-one support to students. All right. Well, you mentioned you are tapped in. So I want people to be able to connect with you and keep up with all that you're, you know, sharing. So where can they do that? Where's the best place for them to follow along? We have a lot of great resources on Actua's website, so actua.ca. Uh, but people can also connect with me on on Twitter at, at Actua CEO. Um, and, you know, and any search for Actua Canada will come up with um, with links to the resources that we have on this topic. Okay, excellent. Uh, we're going to have you back again someday because this conversation is not going anywhere. And thank no. you so much for joining <laughs> me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. In the intricate tapestry of life, some stories resonate deeply, touching the very core of our understanding and empathy. Today, I'm honored to have Rowan Chate Knox, the author of One Sunny Afternoon, join me again, but this time as his true self. Formerly known as Amanda Chate Knox, Rowan's journey of self-discovery, love, and acceptance is beautifully chronicled in his latest work. As a beacon of hope and understanding for many, Rowan's narrative sheds light on the complexities of identity, family, and the transformative power of unconditional love. So let's dive into this heartfelt conversation and explore the layers of his compelling story. Welcome to What She Said, Rowan. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. It is great to have you back. And I and I just wanted to point out that I did mention your former name in the introduction. Um, and you said you were okay with that. So maybe you could ex- 
explain why. Well, not every trans person is okay with their former name, sometimes referred to as their dead name being used. Um, I don't like to be called that in the present tense, but I I have definitely made peace with the fact that I have written a book and many articles and done a lot of media under my former name. And so sometimes just so people know who it is, at least for a little while, that um, that somebody is talking to saying Amanda is absolutely fine in my case. All right. So what inspired you to pen One Sunny Afternoon and how did the experiences of your child and partner coming out as transgender influence your decision to share your journey? Well, One Sunny Afternoon is uh, is about my breakdown in 2020. Um, some people don't call it a breakdown. Some people don't even like the term uh, mental health breakdown. It just sort of depends on, on who you are. But that's the best way that I can describe what happened to me. So I dealt with a, a, a huge online pile on, like a, just a big dog pile. And, and it started off as, as criticism of my previous book, actually, the one that, um, which is called Love Lives Here. Um, and that is about my family story through two gender transitions. First, my child came out as trans at the age of 11. And then my spouse of 18 years came out as trans, um, you know, and, uh, and, and now lives very happily as a woman. Um, and so I wrote that story as the writer in the family. And some people sort of had some issues with the fact that I, at the time, not being out as trans, wrote a book about trans people. And that's fine. The criticism itself was not the issue. Um, the issue is how it was dealt with and how it was very, very public. And then it invited a whole bunch of hate, not, not just not, not criticism, hate. Um, and I was piled on for a solid week, I would say. And at the end of that, it, um, I ended up in the hospital with um, suicidal ideation. I was very, very close to taking my own life. And that started a journey because a new journey, if you will, I'd already been through several journeys in my life, but it started a journey of healing. And at first I had to figure out who, um, who I was and what was going on with me. So with the help of a psychiatrist, I figured out that I had a trauma disorder, that I'd been a lifelong trauma disorder. And then I had to get the right type of therapy for that. So I started to move through therapy and, um, and started to heal and started to figure myself out, which has inevitably led me to where I am today. So One Sunny Afternoon is very much about um, finding myself, whereas Love Lives Here was about the people in my life finding themselves. And so you really dive into identity and self-discovery in this book, then. How has your understanding of identity evolved over the years, especially in the context of your own journey? Well, I've been very fortunate, for one, to have people in my life who are very supportive of me exploring who I am. Um, I, I've had, uh, I've gone through a, a lot of layers, if you will. So trauma, and I, I describe this a lot in the book, and I think a lot of experts would agree with me that trauma is a very layered condition. A trauma disorder um, essentially is a disorder where your brain and your nervous system have, have worked really hard to find ways to protect yourself that aren't always the healthiest ways. Some of that can be covering up who we are, behaving in certain ways, trying to fit in in certain ways, um, just trying to play a role that we feel will keep us safe. And I touched on that in my first book. I talked about how I had been bullied so badly and all these different things that happened to me that I learned that I 
had to be a certain way to be accepted by society and being accepted by society kept me safe. I go into much greater detail in one sunny afternoon, but as I started to heal from the trauma, a lot of those layers began to peel back. And the more they peeled back, the more I figured out who I really was inside. Um, so it, it has been, it has been quite a, um, quite a process over the last three and a half years to get to where I am now. Your, your story is both personal and, and universal, really. I mean, um, you talk about the support you receive individually and then online, I see it all the time, the amount of hate that you receive. How do you think society's perception of transgender individuals has evolved? And, and where do you see room for improvement? I know online is, is, is almost like a, a vacuum. What about outside of that online world? Is it better? I think it depends on where you live. Um, I think that anything is concentrated online. You can get very concentrated uh, support and understanding in communities. Um, you can also get very concentrated hate and bigotry. So I happen to live now, we, you know, we, we've moved to Toronto uh, this year. And um, in my part of Toronto, and basically everywhere I go in Toronto, nobody looks twice. It's, it's one of those very, um, very accepting cities, I think, in large part, because it's the most multicultural city in the world. So people are coming from all over and all these different backgrounds. And so it's, it's sort of a, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a nice little, you know, um, place to be who you are. And when I lived in Ottawa, it was very much the same. I, I did not experience a lot of hate. Occasionally, yes, but but most of the time, it was not somewhere where I felt unsafe, my family felt unsafe. Um, but online is one of those places where you know you you get the worst of the worst people all finding each other. And one of the one of the worst places is um, for me is is X, formerly known as Twitter, and it is, you know, every time I post something on Twitter or whatever we want to call it these days, an account that I can't see either because they have me blocked or they're, um, you know, the, the account is locked, they'll quote tweet what I say. And within minutes of quote tweeting that, there, there is this influx of hate in my comments. So it's all, it's like a, hey, hey, look, Rowan posted something, go and say something nasty. And so you get a lot of that. And if your content as a trans person is posted elsewhere, a picture of you, what have you, um, with a link to where you originally posted the content, people will come from all over to just dump hatred on you. And it's, it's not just reserved for trans people. A lot of people of various, you know, marginalized groups are dealing with this as well. Um, but it is really highly concentrated in, in the trans community and, it, and on the trans, it's very focused on the trans community because right now we are one of the scapegoats for for a lot of politicians and groups to get attention and try to get votes and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it is really unfortunate that sort of where we're, we have a, we have quite the target on us right now. What's the central message or takeaway then that you hope readers will walk away with from one sunny afternoon? 
I think that there's a lot more going on in someone's life than than what you might think is going on. Um, in my case, I think people had an idea of who I was and how I would handle things and what I was, you know, what what, what kind of strength I had. And I do think I'm a strong person. I do think I'm a resilient person, but I had so much going on under the surface, so much happening in my life that what happened online, maybe for somebody else, they would have been able to handle that at that time in my life, dealing with all the things that I was dealing with, I couldn't handle anymore. And that was nearly the end of me. And I think that sometimes when we look at people online, you know, we don't see a person we see an argument, we see an opinion, we see something to maybe get our frust- someone to get our frustrations out on. And that's not what it's about. We, we have to remember people's humanity, um, no matter where we happen to meet them, no matter, no matter where they happen to be sharing who they are. So I think that's the big takeaway is, is, is please remember that we're all human beings. Yeah, I remember a prior conversation we had uh, a while ago that, you know, one day, hopefully you will be out of a job fighting this fight. And uh, we're seeing right now a lot of hate directed towards trans kids. And on a personal note, I just want to say that I'm very grateful that you continue to put yourself out there and, and, and defend the rights of trans people. It's important and it matters and you matter. And thank you so much for joining me, Rowan. Where can people get the book? People can get one sunny afternoon just about everywhere. Uh, it's out on September 12th. Um, it will be available at your local bookstore and online. All right. Incredible. I'm going to put that uh, in the link when this goes out on podcast. And people can also find uh, it on what she said talk.com when I put the show wrap up there. So thank you again. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.